RadioInfluence.com. You know her from network radio, but now she's on the net and in your head. This is the Fabulous Sports Bay on Radio Influence. Hey, it's me. It's the Babecast. Guess what? I got draft, draft, and even more draft going on. And I thought, you know what? Charlie Campbell is going to come and visit us from Walter Football. We love him more than anything else. Remember when I used to do the draft? Remember, like, I'd have somebody write in and they'd say, I want to be the Jets. And they used to fax us stuff and do all that kind of stuff now. And now there's no reason from what I can see. I don't really see anybody when Charlie and all these people who do this for a living, you going somewhere? What are you picking that up for? I'm in the middle of doing something. I was, gr- I am kind of grumpy today. I sort of felt I was eating, I was drinking my coffee today. And I was like, because <laughs> it wakes me up early. I have lots of things to talk about. All right. What was I talking about? So anyway, I'm talking about the draft. And one of the things I was talking about is I went back. Really, this must have been in like 83, 84. And John McKay was still the coach here. Remember Ricky Bell? I'll never forget. I'm going to a different direction. So just stay with me. Ricky Bell was here, but, you know, I always followed the Bucks. I mean, even when they were 70, whatever they were, 76, is that whenever the hell they started doing it. And I always followed them. And Ricky Bell was a guy who was a pretty good football player. And he called up one time, and I was with somebody else doing a show, and he said, I've been traded to the San Diego Chargers. And we said, what? He said, I've been traded to the San Diego Chargers. So we call the Bucks, and the Bucks lie. Of course they lie. And they go, we didn't get rid of him. And I'm like, well, he just talked to us on the phone. And they said, no, no, we don't know anything about it. And then people like Stroud and people like that from local newspapers called me up and said, do you have this information? Because they're lying like crazy about him. And so I went and looked at it. I said, oh, I have carts, those little carts, and you'd throw it in, and you had all these, like, 30-second things of these people going, no, he's fine, nothing's going on. And Ricky Bell going, I've been traded to the Chargers. I don't know why I went there, but I did go to Ricky Bell, and I haven't even thought about that. We have things to do. Charlie Campbell's going to join us. We have lots of things. The Babe cast is back in action. Let's go talk to Charlie right now. Hey, how's it going? I'm good, honey. How are you today? Oh, I'm fine. Just working away. You know what makes me funny is, I, I, you know, we're all worried about the, the 2018, and yet you guys have already got 2019 and 2020 already done for the draft. I'm like, wait, I can barely get through 2018 right now. <laughs> yeah, I haven't done. Walt did a 2021. I haven't gotten that far yet. But, uh, yeah, I have a the 2019 one done just for kind of a rough uh, – kind of watch list more than anything else at this point. I mean, can I, let's talk a little bit about the draft. It was a big deal and all that, but let's just talk about it because everybody was so busy with the quarterbacks. And then Baker Mayfield goes to the very first one, goes to Cleveland in the middle of that. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, I, I didn't have him as the top quarterback in the draft. Um, I thought, uh, they had a good chance of getting him at four. So they could have taken Saquon Barkley 
with the first pick then and, and potentially with strong likelihood, I think that Mayfield would have been there at the fourth pick. Um, so in that regard, I, I think it's questionable, but this is a team that's been starved for quarterback, a franchise quarterback for a long time. Uh, and they have to get a guy and they really, you know, they want to take the guy that they're the most comfortable with that they believe in the most and that they fall in love with. And Mayfield was that guy. So, uh, you know, I can understand where they didn't want to take the risk of losing him, uh, and having him go off the board at pick two or three. Are are you comfortable with everybody? Because there are a lot of talk about whether Allen can do this or Darnold can do that and all that. As we talk about the quarterbacks, do you think, I mean, a lot of people got in there. You saw that Josh Rosen got in there and Josh Rosen, who had a big attitude when they brought him up in, in the Cardinals, I thought, ooh, they're going to straighten this guy right out because he was like, oh, I have a chip on my shoulder. I said, we don't even know if you can play football. What are you talking about? Yeah, well. I think with Rosen, he's a unique individual. And I think that's been where part of the uh, kind of personality teammate leadership uh, issues come into play is because he's not the typical football player. He has a unique background. He didn't grow up like most of the players uh, is more of a unique mind uh, comes from a different kind of family and I think in the football culture, that can rub some the wrong way. And so as a result, I think he's you know, going to need to really kind of try and keep quiet and learn the NFL uh, as a rookie here. Uh, watch Larry Fitzgerald, watch Patrick Peterson, uh, learn from those veterans and do a lot of listening and, and really adapt to the NFL rather than trying to kind of uh, speak out and talk a lot. Uh, yeah, veterans don't typically gravitate mm-hmm. towards those kinds of rookies. So uh, he needs to listen and learn a lot this first season. And I think if he does that, then he has the physical talent to be a franchise quarterback. You know, one of the things, Charlie, that I was talking about here was the thing with the Giants getting Saquon Barkley. I mean, everybody said, oh, why are you taking? There used to be we take the number one. That would be a running back. And then it got to the point like we're only taking him in the second round, but yet the second pick overall, the Giants took Barkley. What do you think about that? I think it was a really questionable move by the Giants. I think uh, another team that already has a young franchise quarterback or a or a franchise quarterback that maybe was injured, I think that pick makes sense because he was the best player in the draft. But for the Giants, with a quarterback that's uh, in his late 30s and hasn't played well the past two seasons. Clearly, his skill set is in, in the decline. He's aging. His best football is behind him. For them to pass on a franchise quarterback, I think, is a big mistake, a potential franchise quarterback. They're not learning from what we've seen with the Browns the past few years where the Browns passed on Carson Wentz. They passed on Deshaun Watson. They passed on Derek Carr, uh, passed on Pat Mahomes and Mitch Trubisky as well. And then they end up taking Baker Mayfield. So to me, it's so hard for teams to get those guys. They, you can see these teams that get stuck in mediocrity that are, you know, going seven and nine, eight and eight, year after year, 
stuck in the middle of the draft where the good quarterbacks don't get to their picks and they're in that quarterback purgatory and they're going through these veteran retreads that other teams don't want anymore or uh, didn't work out elsewhere. And I think the Giants uh, are taking the risk of putting themselves in that situation because they have talent there on offense with Barkley and Odell Beckham to uh, kind of be one of those seven and nine ish kind of teams for year after year. And then you can end up wasting the prime of a receiver like Beckham when you don't have a true franchise quarterback. It's so hard to be picking uh, in place to, to have a shot at one of them. And I think that that need in the passing driven NFL, the quarterback driven NFL trumps everything else. And you got to take a franchise quarterback if there's a if the, there's a potentially one available to you. You know, one of the things that we talk about when we talk about this, and you brought this up too, which is I sit there and I watch these guys and I think back to like when Tom Brady got up there and, and things like that. When I think of that, but I see how different it is today. Like you can't go to the combine unless you have nine coaches telling you what to do there anymore. You know, you can't show up and jump on this and, and you know, run the 40 and do all that kind of stuff. You've got to have a certain kind of coach so that you have a four whatever in there some way. Yeah, I think the combine preparation and uh, results have, have been inflated. And I know some teams, uh, they don't really you know, weigh too much of that uh, in terms of changing grades or anything. And I think that's most teams in general. Uh, they use the combine more to confirm where they have a player uh, rather than, you know, throw a guy that's late a lot higher or, mm -hmm. or completely drop a guy uh, because he didn't have a good combine. So I, it's a piece of the puzzle, but I think in, in the media also um, gets caught up in a lot of the numbers as well. But the analytics side of football that's uh, gaining influence, they also look at combine numbers strongly. Mm -hmm. So uh, you know, that part of the the league that's trending towards analytics, they're going to look at those numbers closely. And so uh, it'll vary across the league, the importance of it. But I, I definitely think uh, with the way these players are prepping for the combine, obviously uh, posting big combine mm -hmm. numbers is a huge goal for any agent. You know, one of the things, because I, I think when I was thinking about it, I thought, when you have this down, it's 2018, it's just a few days ago. But when you look at it, you think to yourself, these people did well and these people didn't well. Can you just look at the Packers and you look at the Cardinals or somebody like that and say these these did better, these didn't? Because they've never really played in the NFL. So we think they're going to be all right, but we don't really know anymore. Yeah, and I, I mean, the snap judgments, uh, you know, definitely – uh, are are uh, in, uh, on their face kind of ludicrous because you none of these guys have played a down of NFL football and you don't know how injuries are going to play out and how coaches getting fired and schemes changing can really impact players' careers and everything else. So the snap judgments, uh, you know, I think uh, – to me, what how you how I would evaluate on if a team did well in the draft is if they're taking good players at each pick that are 
kind of appropriately graded in that round mm-hmm. or uh, across the league, or if they're getting guys that were unexpectedly uh, that slipped to a spot, like say Denver taking Cortland Sutton in the second round, the mm-hmm. wide receiver from SMU who many thought would be a first round pick. That's kind of an example of where you say that's good value right. for the Broncos second round pick. So to me, that's, that's kind of where the, the draft judgments immediately can make some sense. When you do this, and this is what you do for a living all the time, Charlie, is there like a, you go through the first two rounds and go, well, why the hell didn't this guy get picked in the first or the second round? Uh, do you have a lot of those people that you think they should be there or somebody's not taken until the fourth? And you're thinking, I really did think that was, a, you know, late in the first round kind of thing. Yeah, there, every year there's a, a quite a bit of those guys uh, for why did they slide much further? Why did this or that guy go undrafted? So I started a series of articles for each of those, uh, why the slide and why undrafted. And so after the draft, when teams uh, can speak a little more freely because they're not afraid of you know, revealing uh, a player they might like uh, or dislike um, to kind of, you know, hide their, their real intentions that I write up, you know, like the, for example, the Notre Dame wide receiver, St. Brown, uh, Akram Wadley, the running Mm -hmm. back from Iowa. I have articles up on those guys, why they slid or why they went undrafted where teams have kind of told me uh, why they, why that happened. So uh, it definitely happens every year where you have guys going much lower than expected and some guys going undrafted that it's completely unexpected. You know, one of the things, Charlie, by the way, Walter football, you would catch him all the time on that. It's certainly one of the big sports pages that I have on my computer. You know, when we're looking at this and we're looking at what happens here, there are people that didn't get drafted, but they're guys that you thought would have gotten in. But do you remember when there were 16 rounds and not just seven rounds? Because now it's like, I remember when there were 16 rounds and it used to just go. And now the best thing about seven is that if you don't get picked in the first seven, it's not like they can take you in the 10th round. You're free to go to Arizona or go to Miami or go to New England. At least you have the opportunity to do that, which I think is much better than that 16 rounds. Yeah, I mean, for a lot of agents and players, once they get to round six and seven, uh, their preference is to go undrafted because then they can pick the team they sign with. They can uh, look at the depth chart, look at the coaching staff and go to a team that gives a real opportunity to undrafted free agents or go to a team that's weak at their position so they feel they have a better opportunity for playing time and a roster spot. So that definitely uh, factors into it late in the draft. And I agree with you for a lot of those late rounders, Mm -hmm. it's better for them to go undrafted. I I wrote in the combine. I know some top league people uh, have floated and uh, suggested the draft going back to 10 rounds because they feel with all these undrafted free agents, there's plenty of players to fill out three more rounds. Uh, but I don't know if that's ever going to happen, but I, I definitely, uh, you see good players go undrafted. So if a guy goes undrafted, it isn't the end of the world, whether it's, 
Arian Foster or A.J. Bouye. Mm -hmm. Uh, Foster became one of the best running backs in the NFL during his prime, and A.J. Bouye is an excellent corner and one of the top-paid corners in the NFL. And both of those guys went undrafted and were genius signings by the Texans. So uh, it's not the end of the world to go undrafted and, and players still get a shot. Do you look at this, Jeff, and you say the Ravens did well, Houston did well. Do you look at it that way or is it really, I mean, we talked about it before, but if you look at seven draft choices or five, whatever they take, do you say they really did well or do we have to wait really? We have to wait, but I think we just evaluate if they got good players at that spot. If you don't have, uh, say, a mega reach where most teams around the league view uh, a player is like a fourth or fifth rounder and a team takes them in the second round, you know, that's, that's a bad reach. Uh, mm-hmm. And that dilutes the overall talent on your roster when you're playing against other teams that stay true to the board uh, and are taking players that are adequately graded as in the round that they're going. So uh, it, it, to me, that's really the, the value part and the part worth looking at right away after the draft. You know, one of the things when I, I'm looking at the draft and I always look through everybody and see what it is in this, you know, a quarterback can go here. I mean, like if you're the Jets quarterback and you go up there and say, OK, I have Sam Darnold. Does that mean everybody just goes away and they just give it to him and say, work your way out of it the next couple of years? Well, yeah, I think, I mean, when you make that kind of commitment, like with the Jets and Sam Darnold, uh, you know, you want to play the guy at the right time. I think you, you do want to get him on the field Mm -hmm. in the first couple of years of his career, because there's nothing like live action as to learn from. Uh, But at the same time, you want to protect them in their career. You don't want to turn the guy into David Carr 2.0 and get sacked 70 times a year and have him shell-shocked. And you don't, uh, if he doesn't have receivers to play with, and they're, you know, just each situation is unique. And I think you want to keep the long-term kind of prospects in mind as to when you start playing a guy. Uh, so, but definitely I think it, whether that's you sit him year one and develop him, work on the, the mechanics and the speed of the game with practice reps and whatnot, and then year two, you turn it over to him. I think there's some wisdom in that. You know, when we talk about this and I'm thinking about it, Charlie, let's talk about my favorite teams. It's the only thing I care about. Let's talk about the Bucks and let's talk about the Patriots and how you thought they did this year. Well, I thought the Bucks uh, earlier in the day, uh, Thursday of the draft, during that day I wrote uh, a blog about how the Bills were trying to trade to somewhere between picks four and seven, and they, they did it with Tampa Bay, and I think that was a wise move by the Bucks. I like the players they got in the second round overall. Uh, I think the cornerbacks are really going to be able to help them, Carlton Davis and MJ Stewart. I like Vita Vea, uh, their first-round pick, uh, who went 12th overall as a player, but I'm not a big fan of the fit in Tampa Bay because uh, just being a 350-pound defensive lineman, nose tackle, he's going to rotate out of the game a lot in passing situations, and then you factor in the heat down here and uh, the way the Bucks and any team has to rotate their defensive linemen to avoid fatigue and conditioning is a concern with him. 
I'm just, for me, the concern with that pick is they spent a pick on a, in the top 12 on a guy who might only play half the defensive snaps in a game uh, because of the fatigue and conditioning. And then uh, just the kind of player he is that isn't much of a pass rusher for the NFL. So to me, I question the value in using a top 12 pick on a player that isn't going to be an every down guy. So uh, I think in the first round, they should have taken Derwin James, the safety from Florida State. Um, Vita Bay is a good player. I think he'll give the Bucks a good 20 to 30 snaps a game. But I, I just think that, that in the top 12, you need to get a little bit more than that. You know, one of the things about that, it's funny because I, I wrote to a couple of people in Seattle and I said, tell me about Vita Bay. Tell me that I need to say. And they said he is a stud. He can play anywhere on the defensive line, and he said he truly is a stud. That was the word that they were using for me. And I thought, well, can but you said he's 350. I don't want to say anything, but wouldn't you give it to him when you're inside the goal line? I mean, if you were, like, in the two-yard line, wouldn't you put him in there and hand him the football? <laughs> yeah, or use him as a fullback or tight end. Uh, yeah, I mean, he – and you see the athleticism with him. He's a freak athlete with how quick – uh, and agile he is at that weight and making tackles on punt coverage mm-hmm. and whatnot. He, he's really, uh, to me, it's a lot like Haloti Nada coming out of Oregon. Uh, and so I think he could be that kind of player. I just think in the, in the Bucks conditions, it's just going to be a, a thing where they're going to have to monitor his snaps and conditioning a lot. Uh, and with all their defensive linemen, doesn't matter if it's a 270 pound defensive end, they have to be rotated in that Tampa heat to stay fresh and effective. You know, one of the things I thought about, because it happened with Safarian Jenkins, I understand he had an alcohol problem and he's back being sober and that's great. And the linebacker from the University of Washington, I'm thinking of in the top of my head, I can't remember. But those people come from the University of Washington. Most of them come from there. And I think to myself, you're going from up there when people drop dead when it's 90. It's 120 down here. I don't understand that because the guy's like from somewhere up there. It's not like he went from he's up there somewhere in the University of Washington. He grew up in that area somewhere. And I'm thinking, is this the best thing in the world for somebody? I mean, I'm a fan of the Bucks, obviously, but I'm thinking, why did they get this guy? Is he the worst guy or I'm not the worst guy, but he just it doesn't for me. And I may be completely wrong, but for me, I don't want somebody from the University of Washington having to deal with 120 degree heat every day down here. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's going to be a big adjustment for him in terms of the conditions he played with. I think in some ways for those bigger offensive linemen, teams like the Bucks and Jags and Dolphins, uh, you know, that, that play in this heat in September and October uh, can be better off going with a lot of the SEC linemen, uh, if, you know, if it fits there in terms of value, but guys who are used to this kind of heat. But, yeah, he's going to be in for an adjustment to this heat. And I remember back in 2010 uh, talking about that with Gerald McCoy and Brian Price, who was the Bucks' second-round pick that year, defensive tackle out of UCLA, and they were really huffing and puffing uh, in those that first training camp and OTAs and getting used to the heat was tough on them. And it takes some time really 
for those guys that, you know, really kind of, they adjust and they're the second, third year, it's not an, not as much of an issue, but I think that's definitely going to be a factor for him as a rookie in terms of the amount of snaps he can play. What do you see from the Patriots side of things? How do you see what they did? They were busy doing this and that, and they had a couple of draft choices in the second and all that, and they kept bouncing out of that. How do you see what happened there? Some people are saying, well, they got rid of this guy, and he's got a soldier's going to make this much money. But, you know, the, the guy that they got for, I guess it was for the Patriots, I'm forgetting his name. What's his name? Is it? I forgot. Isaiah Wynn. Yeah, Wynn, because they said he's smaller, although he's not the size that Soldier is. But what do they do with that? I mean, he, the guy's making like 17 million wherever he's going, Soldier, and this guy's making a lot less. But how do you look at that? Do you say this guy really isn't ready for that? Uh, well, Wynn played a lot at Georgia. He's a versatile player, gritty player. Uh, good run blocker, really improved as a pass protector. Uh, Size-wise, he definitely is smaller than your average left tackle in terms of height and length in the NFL. He's similar to Calvin Beecham, who turned into a pretty good left tackle for the Steelers, uh, had a stop at the Jaguars, and now is with the Jets, but mm-hmm. uh, kind of overcame being 6'2", 6'3", and not being your kind of typical 6'5", 6'6", tackle. And I think Wynn could be that. He's a good athlete. He's strong, good run blocker. And the Patriots have one of the best offensive line coaches in the NFL. So uh, I, I, you know, Solder last year, while the Giants gave him a huge, huge contract, he did not play as the top offensive tackle Mm -hmm. in the NFL. He's a declining player. So I think the Patriots had their price. They were willing to pay him, and the Giants went way above, and they're going to move up. They're not going to overpay for a declining player. And I think in the long haul, that's a smart strategy for New England. And I think Wynn could definitely – be one of those guys that doesn't have prototypical size, but he finds a way to be productive and be a reliable, steady blocker. Did you see one of the things that I think about, Charlie, is when we get later on in the draft, what are the best picks that happen there later on the draft that maybe went in fifth and sixth and seventh that maybe could be really good picks? Uh, well, I think Washington Redskins getting the Virginia Tech tackle Tim Settle, uh, on day three was a really nice pick to rotate with their first rounder, Deron Payne. They had issues stopping mm-hmm. the run. I think uh, getting those those two big boys to man the middle will definitely help them out. Even though the Raiders have gotten a lot of criticism, I think they took some smart risks on day three of the draft because at that point, you know, less than 50% of second round picks pan out and each round it gets worse after that. So in the sixth round, you're looking at less than 10% of those picks end up having, you know, multi-year NFL careers and legitimate careers. So, you know, taking some boom or bust guys on day three, I think makes some sense because you could end up, getting a massive steal on a super cheap contract. The Raiders did that with Nick Nelson, the cornerback from Wisconsin. He was graded as a second rounder across the league, had a minor knee meniscus tear, but he's supposed to be ready for training camp. So I think that could be a steal. And then Maurice Hurst, their defensive tackle, they took in the fifth round from Michigan. 
he was considered an early round talent, had the, you know, a heart um, red flag at the combine was said to be reevaluated and cleared to play, but he slips to the fifth round. And if that isn't an issue, they just got a, you know, first, second round, early round talent there in the fifth round. So uh, to me, I think the Raiders uh, took a risky, riskier approach. They didn't go conservative, but it could end up being boom picks for them with those two. You know, when you're talking about that, I was talking about Marcus Davenport. They took him in the first round. The Saints did. They said that 13 people had taken him off the draft because he has a heart problem. And so for whatever the reason is, they could see that. But they went big time with a guy that some people said we've taken him off completely because of this heart problem. Yeah, I mean, that it's going to vary by team. And as I reported, uh, Boise, the Boise State linebacker, Leighton Vandresh, had got dropped uh, because of medical uh, by some. And you know, then others, Chris Mortensen, Mike Mayock, uh, confirmed that wrote the same thing. And, uh, you know, that's just going to vary by team because each team has their own doctors. So I know teams that had medically flunked Chris Johnson coming out of East Carolina, and he went on to a excellent career with the Titans. So, uh, it's an inexact science. And I've heard plenty of scouts criticize their doctors and say, man, he got this guy wrong or that guy wrong that was taken off our board and shouldn't have been. So those mistakes happen too. And then, you know, there are other guys like Daquan Bowers uh, with the Mm -hmm. Bucks from 2011, who was supposed to be, you know, one of the first players drafted. He slipped to the second round because of a knee issue and that knee, you know, turned out to keep him from ever really being a good pro. He just Mm -hmm. didn't have the explosiveness and speed that he had once had. So uh, you can find examples for both sides of it, but the medical part is definitely uh, something that comes into play with some of these guys can really hurt them and where they go in the draft, but uh, a lot of, and then, then there's guys who just overcome it. You know, because when I'm talking about this and I'm thinking, I love the draft, you know, what's interesting too, is that when I used to do the draft, we'd always have somebody that we would get there and they would be, you know, the first person to talk talk for the Minnesota Vikings. I have the draft choice for that. Yeah, I don't need that anymore. Charlie's there. Do you know? I don't. Do you know what I mean? It used to be, oh, I do this and I'm looking. I think this is my favorite team. I don't do that at all anymore. I'd rather talk to you because you know everything, period. Yeah, thank you. Well, I mean, I, uh, you know, you I know, appreciate what you're doing if you're a Jets fan, and I understand that's what you're doing, but why do that anymore when these guys have everything? I'm sorry. Go ahead, Charlie. Yeah, I mean, to me, the, the draft is really, uh, uh, for me, it's the most fun part of the NFL year because yeah. it's like Christmas Day, and, and you have hope and excitement for every team. You know, even a team that doesn't have a first-round pick like the Chiefs or the Texans or the Rams, they still got some good players that can help them next year. If you're if you've been a Bucks fan and you haven't been to the playoffs since John Gruden roamed the sidelines, you know, the draft has kind of provided more excitement and fun for the team than a lot of the, you know, past few seasons have. So every team gets some young talent, gets gets better, gets some hope for the future. All 32 teams are involved. So 
uh, and you get back into some football in the spring when it's been feels like it's been a marathon since you watched a game. So uh, to me, the draft is just a lot of fun for a variety of reasons. And I think it really uh, brings a lot to the fan experience and, and for the league as a whole. You know, Charlie, at this point, I think to myself, all right, you push that away and you're looking at 2019 and 2020 right now. I don't even know anybody in 2020 yet. Are you kidding me? And I sort of know some people in 19, but do you just sort of push that aside because that's what you've done and now you go to the next draft? Well, I'm I'm uh, kind of doing this week, the, immediately I kind of do a lot of review on what just happened in the uh, draft that just occurred. And then uh, going into May, I'll start looking ahead to the 2019 guys uh, putting those rankings together, studying up on them over the summer, putting initial 2020 yeah. kind of rankings and watch lists together, uh, just to give readers those uh, those articles. So then during college football, they can check out, you know, uh, who who to watch and who to kind of pay attention to. And then, of course, you have guys rise and fall, and some guys come out of nowhere to be top 10 picks. They were stuck as backups or mm-hmm. maybe, uh, you know, a transfer situation. So uh, obviously a lot's going to change, and this isn't gospel at this point, but it definitely uh, is fun to look ahead and kind of get to know next year's players and, and see what the strengths of that draft could be. And the, and NFL teams do that too. They do in their draft meetings before the draft say, okay, what about next year is the, you know, the, the great defensive line class. So let's mm-hmm. keep that in mind that next year we might be able to get a really good defensive lineman and, uh, you know, this year, the defensive line, the edge rush was kind of weak. So let's not reach on a guy that doesn't deserve to go there. I love talking with you. Thank you so much for joining me. I do appreciate it, Charlie. It's been great. You got to go do draft stuff. I don't want to talk to you until this time next year. OK, <laughs> you got it, babe. We'll definitely do it again. But uh you enjoy the summer and football isn't that far away. I know. I can't wait for it. I love you, Charlie. Thanks a lot. Thanks, babe. Great talking with you. Thank you, Charlie. I do appreciate it. You can catch it on Walter Football. And now for our English-speaking friends, you can catch him on Walter Football. Charlie is always on there. Find anything that you want, especially when you're talking about the drafts. It's really good. I was talking about John McKay, and I was talking about the fact that I saw him, and it must have been the first time that I was involved in, like, a draft. And they were such idiots, too, because it's funny how you look at it then and then you look at it today. And they still have. I was doing something yesterday. It was really nice. I did this thing yesterday at at, uh, St. John's University in which I talked to people that were in sports writing. And some of the people there were also in sports management, which I thought was really good. And there were several women that asked me and guys that said, I want a radio show. Well, you better get some sponsors. You're never going to have a radio program. Okay. You can say that, but you can't. What do you expect? Your dad is going to pay for everything, you know, but they were very good. How did I get into John McKay? One time I'm talking to John McKay. John McKay, you sit there. Everybody's got to be really quiet. He's, you know, the guy from USC. We can't say anything. And I, of course, go, well, do you put the tackle over here and you put the running back on this side or that? And he gets out of the chair that he's been in forever. 
And he goes to the blackboard and he starts writing X's and O's and showing me how this thing goes and all that. And people were looking at me going, why did he do that? He's never done anything like that. I said, well, it must have been because of me. But that was kind of interesting for him to like get up and actually do something for people. Because one of the things that happens and you see it more and more and but they would run and get somebody who was a, a college coach. But when they came in here, I'll never forget, they had a college coach here one time. And uh, these two guys that were from Alabama were there. And uh, they said to me, oh, honey, he's not going to pay any attention to you. I remember them saying that. I thought, really? Well, when he gets fired, I'll be standing there. And they wouldn't let me in the damn door. And I started kicking the door and kicking the door. And they had to shut me up. To let me in the door. They wouldn't want, they didn't want me to talk about it. And I was, I wanted a million things to do. When you get fired, I want to know about it. I was, that was the woman who said, oh, they're never going to pay any attention to you. I thought, oh, Christ, get in the back of the line. That's what they all do for me. But it was kind of interesting because I had been at a game and I had been up there and I was doing my, um, doing stuff that you'd send up to CBS. I'd do all my interviews and stuff and I'd send it up to CBS and then whatever they took, they used. And I think you got $20 for that. It was a very important $20 that I got for that. And so you got that. And it was kind of interesting because I remember walking out and I went through and I went to my car and I passed the coach that was there. And he was a tad loaded and he came over and he put his arm around me. It said something about people that you think are your friends are not your friends, but I didn't know where to go. And so I picked up the phone and called somebody at one of the, at the, at the newspaper. Cause I thought, what do I do with that? You know? And I thought he's giving me information that he's just been fired. But I remember calling up some people that I can think of right now and saying, this guy just told me he's fired and I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this. And it came out the next day that they were, but they always tried to dance it around. And then we go back to poor Ricky Bell, which we're not doing anymore. All right, we'll do that. I have things to do. I've got baseball. Can we do a little baseball? And by the way, I've done hockey and give it up to those stupid lightning. Where they went in there, bing, bang, boom, and and they they beat them up. And I just thought yesterday was going to be a day for them. And it was really good for them. Listen, I'm watching the um, the basketball thing. God, that's... I was looking around yesterday and I came across, it was Houston and what are you doing that you're making that noise? Don't, don't make noises while I'm trying to talk. Um, I, I'm watching the Utah Jazz who I've never, I've never hated anyone as much as I hate the Utah Jazz and I haven't seen them in years and I don't even care, but I'm watching them in Houston. I'm like, why are you watching this? You know, there's got to be something better on somewhere. So I got rid of that, but I'm looking forward to my Celtics. And I like them okay. I'm going to see exactly how they're going to do. You know, I look at the Celtics sometimes and I go, I'm not so sure. I know. I mean, I know who Horford is and I know all those people. But some of the times I'm not really sure of some of these people. Sometimes I don't really like anything until you get to the playoffs. Are you going to be like that? I'm finding that where it used to be my life 24 hours a day, that I sit down and watch it at night, but it's not like I'm watching anything on TV or anything or listening to what other people have to say. All right, you have a good day. I'll try and do this the next time. We'll have to see whether Jerry lets me do this again. But we'll see you. I'm the Babecast. 
If you know the babe at all, you'll know the show never ends. Follow her on Twitter at Real Sports Babe and subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher. This has been the Fabulous Sports Babe on Radio Influence. I'm Tracy Beans, host of the new podcast, Dark to Light, with Frank and Beans on Radio Influence. It's a new show about politics, but not the way you're used to. What we talk about is actually true. And it's also stuff they don't want you to hear. So we bring it to you weekly. All the intrigue and spin and double talk spelled out for you right with my co-host Frank's special flavor of commentary. Don't miss him. He's an experience. So join us. Dark to Light with Frank and me, Tracy Beans, drops each Friday on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com.